I should say I'm from the Chartered Institute of Housing. I say that because um, some people may not believe that professional bodies have an interest in migration and asylum. And uh, I carry the flag for those issues with the Chartered Institute of Housing. And Sue uh, works uh, with us on our housing rights website, which is flagged up there, and you're all welcome to have a look at uh, if you want to know the detail of housing rights for uh, migrants. Ben said that we're going to talk about the evidence, and I think the problem with destitution in many respects is that there isn't very much evidence. So I'm, my bit of the talk is going to be about um, definitions of destitution, what evidence there is, uh, and the difficulties in assessing it. And um, Sue is then going to talk on the basis of the, the new section that we've introduced to the website about um, measures to help uh, destitute migrants, and then I'll briefly come back to mention one particular project, uh, which uh, quite a long-standing project, which works with destitute migrants, principally asylum seekers. Um, what does it mean to be destitute? Uh, in some senses, it's an obvious um, bit of terminology. Um, it tends to be used in terms of homelessness and without enough money to buy uh, basic food and shelter. Um, in the Immigration and Asylum Act, there's a formal definition, which means that if asylum seekers meet that definition, they're eligible for assistance. Although um, it struck me thinking about this, that if you're a single man having to live on £36 a week, you're not very far above being destitute, even with the help from the Home Office. And then there are various academic uh, definitions. Um, I've been looking recently at um, uh, proposals that have been submitted to the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and uh, several have cited this uh, particular paper by uh, somebody called Stephen Deverer, who I don't know. Uh, um, but uh, he looked at, um, ex fairly exhaustively, at different definitions on an international basis. And I thought the interesting thing about his definition was that it, it's, he focused on, uh, as well as the obvious things, also on assetlessness, you know, not having any assets, and being dependent on transfers, i.e. dependent on money that you've got no control over. It's not money you're entitled to, it's not money you earn, it's money that's given to you on a discretionary basis, if, including, of course, begging in the street. Where do we get data uh, from? Well. In a sense, one, one uh, starting point in looking at migrant destitution is to look at the data on undocumented migrants. Um, this, again, is not very good, uh, as many of you in the room will know. Um, the most robust um, estimate seems to be the LSE one uh, that was then updated for the GLA um, uh, for about 600,000, uh, of whom two-thirds are in London. Um, but of course the majority of these are almost certainly not destitute, they're probably working um, illegally or in undocumented ways and probably living with family, friends, etc. So how do we get at the numbers that are destitute uh, as well as being undocumented? Well we can't really, but here are two indicators. Um, Destitute asylum seekers are estimated very roughly, I think, uh, at 50 to 100,000 by still human, still here. And uh, the Red Cross support about 10,000 destitute asylum seekers across the year, uh, of whom about a quarter are sleeping rough, and that, I think, is nationally. So that's one indication. Um, 
On destitution itself, I'll talk in a moment about rough sleeping counts, detailed information available for London through CHAIN. Um, and there, both the rough sleeping counts and the separate CHAIN data are, are now available over a, a run of a few years. So we can begin to see how the picture of destitution, um, the picture of rough, rough sleeping is changing nationally, and the picture of destitution, or rough sleeping rather, in, in London uh, is changing. Uh, in, in more detail. All of the other sources, certainly that I'm aware of, are maybe quite good in themselves, or even very good in themselves, but they're very spasmodic. So the No Accommodation uh, Bureau has a report, there's a report, there's uh, work by Homeless Link, uh, there was a, a separate study of migrant destitution in the Northwest by the Strategic Migration Partnership. Um, hopefully the JRF, the forthcoming JRF work, should help to to address this uh, lack of information on this subject. Um, I'm indebted to Heather Petch, who's sitting on the front row here, for a couple of slides uh, based on her recent work uh, for JRF. Um, her, her conclusions from talking to um, agencies dealing with, with destitute migrants in particular are that people are often on the streets for short periods and they're often, and for that reason, um, are vulnerable in various different ways. Um, it's well established that access to hostels is difficult because people don't, by and large, have benefits. Um, very few housing <coughs> providers make any accommodation available um, at no cost, though there's some signs of that changing. Um, Faith groups, I think, are particularly important, and some kinds of night shelter, but in all of these issues about provision, there are issues of uh, sustainability. Um, the NACOM network, you can look at their website, has a, um, a, a network of about 30 voluntary providers. Um, the, there's, but nevertheless, you know, there's a big shortfall in the, in the number of spaces that would be needed if all destitute migrants were to be accommodated. Um, as Sue will explain, one route out of destitution, which is available to quite a lot of destitute migrants, is regularising their position. And a, a problem about, for example, rough sleeping outreach teams is they're often not geared up to dealing with migrants, <coughs> even though migrants now form in London a big proportion of, of clients. The current alternatives are limited, bed spaces in hostels, um, obviously uh, often charge, uh, there may be free places uh, in some uh, schemes. Um, there are bed spaces available as part of the No Second Night Out um, rough sleeping initiative which the government has financed. Um, then the rest of the arrangements really listed here are all of the sort of informal arrangements that have sprung up. I was talking to somebody last night who um, runs a little informal network in, um, in Yorkshire, and I think he said that they were looking after 11 um, destitute uh, people, I think mainly asylum seekers, um, of whom six were living in houses, uh, basically on the basis that they were people who were willing to put up an asylum seeker and feed him or her at no cost. And obviously, those people are completely people who are doing that on a charitable basis um, are completely below the radar of uh, anyone looking into this issue. So there's a tremendous problem about not only uh, lack of provision 
for people who, by and large, haven't got any money, uh, but also where it does exist, the sustainability of it, and even recognition of the facilities that do exist, which is very sketchy in itself. This new um, Joseph Rowntree study aimed at looking at the extent and nature of destitution in the UK. I should say it's not about uh, destitute migrants exclusively, although mi migrants will obviously be a key element of it. And it's looking, it wants to look at how this pattern has been changing. One obvious feature that's relevant to migrants, but even more relevant to the long-term population, is welfare reform, people being denied uh, benefits through sanctions or through um, you know, various other um, ways in which welfare reform takes benefits away from people. So the key questions the projects will be looking at, and this is that these have only just been submitted, so they're not about to start the later this year, I think. How many people are destitute? Who are they? What different groups and what types of people? What drives uh, destitution? What are the trends over time? And as far as possible, uh, what are people's experiences and what impact does destitution have? Um, I said uh, I'd talk about the rough sleeper accounts, what rough sleeper counts and chain. The rough sleeper counts are conducted one night <coughs> per year from, by local authorities across England. And local authorities either do a count or they make an estimate. And I have to say, quite a lot make an estimate, although in the areas where rough sleeping is greatest, I think the majority do do counts. Um, the methodology was changed. One of the um, good things that the present government has done um, is to um, revise the methodology and make it more rigorous. So it was changed in 2010 and numbers then went up. Um, as you can see, um, and this is rough, count, rough sleeper counting, you know, every type of person who's, who's a rough sleeper. Uh, numbers are high in London, but even higher across the south uh, generally. Um, but um, they, the rough sleeper counts don't count migrants separately, and we know that they understate the problem because it's only a one night per year count. The, the chain data prepared by Broadway um, are based on uh, survey aid agencies who collect data across the year. So it should pick up um, people who are in touch with those agencies and sleeping rough at any time during the year in London. Um, and a surprisingly high proportion of these are migrants, um, the people who come up in the chain data. Um, over half are non-UK nationals, and of these, over half are Central or Eastern European nationals. And of those, the majority are from the uh, eight accession state countries in 2004, plus people from Romania. And I think the Romanian element has been growing uh, over the last two or three years. Um, you can find the chain data on the Broadway website. And they do look at reasons why people are sleeping rough, um, uh, by, and the, the migrant reasons are to do with problems with access to benefits, which Sue will talk about, reluctance to accept voluntary return, particularly European migrants, and um, the, the poor access to advice uh, services, because often advice services that help uh, rough sleepers uh, aren't geared up to helping migrant rough sleepers. 
there's an interesting category of people who um, are picked up in the chain data who aren't British and who aren't uh, EU migrants um, are, are, and are non from non-EU countries, um, about 14%, so a fairly small proportion. The, the, you probably can't read the pie chart, but there's a big spread of um, people um, outside Europe, the main continents represented are Africa and Asia, and the main countries are India, Eritrea, Somalia, Iran and Nigeria, uh, and about 40% of these have uncertain immigration status. And, of course, their problem is likely to be um, uh, no recourse to public funds. Rough sleeping outside London, I mentioned that the rough sleeping counts um, uh, pick up data from outside London. There's also the uh, Homeless Link study, uh, which reviewed the numbers of cases you can see on the slide there. Um, outside London, rough sleepers are far more likely to be uh, UK nationals and of those that aren't, um, are very likely to be EU nationals. And so the proportion of non-EU nationals is much smaller than in London. Um, and the survey was carried out because it was trying to find out about the success or otherwise of the No Second Night Out programme and about two-thirds of the rough sleepers identified were helped to avoid a second night out. One of, one of the problems about um, defining destitution is um, defining what is accommodation. Obviously people sleeping literally on the street have no accommodation, um, but some accommodation can be so bad it hardly qualifies as accommodation. So there are migrants in rural areas, particularly living in caravans, farm uh, outbuildings, uh, containers. They may be living in attics if they've got jobs in, say, hotels or pubs or, and so on. And uh, everybody here will be aware of the growing beds in sheds problem, which um, the uh, government is working with nine authorities, seven of them in London, uh, the other two being Slough and Peterborough, um, to identify uh, beds in sheds and deal with them in inverted commas. Unfortunately, there's a big mixture of actions between uh, immigration enforcement and improving uh, living conditions. And it's very much immigration enforcement which the, the government prioritises. So, uh, oddly enough, um, the people sleeping in beds in sheds may not welcome the intervention by the authorities. Anyway, even so, we have a little knowledge, even though in, sen in a sense beds in sheds might be more identifiable than rough sleepers, we have uh, only incomplete knowledge of how many of those are, but there are alarming numbers. Um, in Slough, they've do done um, infrared uh, photography, aerial photography, they have identified between three and 6,000 structures that are being used. And in Ealing, they think they've got about 60,000 people living in illegal structures, which is quite staggering. I think this is mainly in Southall. Um, and the other London boroughs that are involved in the, in the uh, Beds and Sheds study um, are similarly afflicted, although I think probably Ealing is the worst. Uh, and they don't give much publicity to it because there's a lot of racism around the issue, as you can, as you can imagine. Um, I should say, you know, uh, Heather and I went to look at some of the areas where this is happening. It did strike me that this is 
um, bringing the problems of developing countries to London or London growing the problems that developing countries have. You know, it's very much like um, people living in shanty towns. Well, what are the problems in assessing the extent of destitution? I've really touched on, all, on most of them, I think. They're really pretty obvious. It's a, tra a transient group, so how do you pin them down in order to identify them and get data about them? Uh, if they're migrants, they might be very reluctant to engage uh, with you and share information. Rough sleep accounts are very useful, of course, but they're only a snapshot um, one day in a year. Um, and other studies may reflect the, the, the bias or the client group of agencies providing the data. So um, if you work with asylum seekers, for example, you're likely to identify asylum seekers and not perhaps other types of migrant. Um, so the, there are enormous problems in um, assessing uh, destitution, and I think perhaps I've given some indication of what those are. So, I think, you know, when... When you're looking at the sort of practicalities of dealing with destitute migrants, um, in terms of looking at what it is that advisors might need in order to enable them to start doing it or to do it better, um, the issue actually is very often about, well, well, how did it start? Why are people there? Because really the, the way in which people have come into being destitute very often gives you some pretty important uh, indicators as to what the paths out might be. But I thought I'd start off by just illustrating the point with something that's very new and hasn't yet really turned into you know, rough sleep accounts, street counts and things like that, but I can confidently predict is likely to. Um, one of the drivers for destitution is, in effect, you know, lack of access to benefits, and in particular the benefits that support housing. Um, since the beginning of this year, by the way, this slide is, these slides are now out of date because we had another announcement, didn't we, last week about uh, benefits as well, or was it this week, um, which are those particularly for people with children. But since the beginning of this year, we've actually had three changes to benefits and one change to the European regulations that define who has a right to live in the UK and therefore define access to benefits and indeed to, in, in some cases, to applying to hou for housing to local authorities. Um, reported by journalists, certainly, as being very much in response to an instruction from the election coordinator of the Conservative Party that uh, ministers must bring forward announcements about migration and benefits on a regular basis. Um, all of these uh, changes have been badged as being about European migrants. Um, they're not all about European... They, they all affect European migrants, but they're not all exclusively about them. And, in fact, the first one that came in... Uh, was the, uh, the one at the beginning of January, which was that, from the beginning of January, if you signed on as unemployed, you would be unable to get any benefits whatsoever unless you had been resident in the UK or the Common Travel Area, which includes Republic of Ireland and so on, um, for at least three months. And, in effect, it meant that there was a three-month delay in getting benefits. This is, you know, I mean, there are other delays built into the benefit system that are not migrant-oriented or whatever. It only affects getting income-based job seekers allowance. So you have to sign on to get that benefit. At that stage, it didn't affect housing benefit either, although we'll come on to that later. Uh, or, indeed, eligibility for housing. Um, although, generally, people who are just signing on won't be able to get housing if they're from Europe because they would not have worked in the UK so far. The most interesting thing about this is someone who gets a lot of inquiries in, because I also train in this area, so people come back to me with cases that are bewildering them, um, is that all, all the inquiries bar one so far have actually been about UK citizens. Nobody <coughs> told the journalists when they were reporting this that this was actually a measure that was going to largely affect mainly young people um, leaving the UK in order to live, work, study or whatever and then returning. 
The European national was almost certainly incorrectly identified. The poor woman had left the UK to attend a family funeral, leaving behind her home and her job in the UK, to which she intended to return, um, had been taken ill and as a result had stayed a further four weeks in Europe and had lost her job, but had returned to her home and indeed a spouse, I think, in the UK to be told that she could no longer get unemployment benefit because she didn't fulfil the three-month residence requirement. Almost certainly wrong, by the way. I mean, these are really challenging. But an indicator of just how, you know, sort of, uh, how, how difficult this is. A victim of domestic violence who had tra travelled abroad with her husband, was living with him for the last five months, returned to the UK as a result of the domestic violence. A British victim told no benefits, that sort of thing. So the irony is actually that we're going to potentially see more UK destitute people on the streets as a result of a measure that was very much badged as being about stopping benefit tourism. Um, on the 1st of January as well, we had the regulations changed as to who constitutes a European, uh, a European citizen with a right to reside. And it means that people who lose their, their jobs now enter a world of what we can only describe as, as precariousness because uh, people who lose their jobs will only keep their worker status for a further six months um, and then only exceptionally beyond that, that when they're then downgraded, if you like, to no longer being people with the status of workers, they become work seekers and then they become subject to this further change, which means that as of the beginning of this month, they no longer get housing benefit. So it's very likely that somebody who is now working, if they lose their job today, will become completely destitute after six months because you can only get income-based job seekers allowance for six months if you're a European migrant. And, uh, and uh, that also <coughs> they will, after six months, lose their access to housing benefit. So it's a whole change in that before, if you were working, you had a reasonable expectation that if you lost your job through no fault of your own, you would continue to have rights to live in the UK to claim benefits and so on. Um, and then there's this minimum earnings threshold which has been introduced, which is that anybody who goes to the DWP for benefits on the basis that they are or have been a worker will now be subject to a test if their earnings go below £149 per week over the last three months. They will be tested as to whether they're really a worker. Um, the problem with this is that it's meant to be a two-stage process, but we all know that, in effect, officials are likely to operate as a one-stage process, i.e. a refusal. And obviously, people's earnings um, in the sorts of jobs that you get in today's economy as new jobs are likely to be very variable, and showing that you've earned this threshold over three months is going to be difficult. Um, and if you fail the test, then you're reclassified as a work seeker. So again, you can only get unemployment benefits for six months and no housing benefit as of the beginning of this month. Problem here is that somebody may well be working and managing perfectly well and then need top-up benefits, for example, because they were staying with a relative and could no longer do so, need housing, and find out that the earnings that they had, which were perfectly okay to support them, have tipped them over from no longer being defined as a worker with rights into being defined as somebody with vastly fewer rights. So there's a real issue there about the uh, precariousness, if you like, that everybody's been thrown into. And then as of the beginning of this month, no housing benefit for people who are classified simply as work seekers. And as I said, it'll be new people, but also people who get downgraded from being workers. So first of all, the likely effect of this, I think, is that everybody from European countries, and some British people as well, are going to find themselves in the situation that all the so-called A8 accession state migrants were in for the seven years after accession. In other words, that they're in this constant state of extreme precariousness, that they lose their jobs, they find themselves losing everything else. 
Secondly, I can see the effect already. For people working in housing, this presents you with a really difficult prospect. Somebody could be perfectly stable in their employment when you house them, and two months down the line the firm goes bust, they lose their job, and all of a sudden they're moving into a situation where fairly soon they're going to be unable to pay their rent. And that will, of course, change the way that potential landlords, both social and what I suppose we can only think of as antisocial landlords, uh, treat, their, um, you know, treat their potential tenants. And that's going to knock on into issues about discrimination. So, you are an advisor and a destitute migrant walks in the door. What are you going to do about it, is the, the key question. If you're not already doing it, if you're an advice agency that decently wants to deal with anybody, the first issue really is to determine how it is that they've become destitute. What have been the drivers, if you like, for that destitution? And really, there are only a few of those. First of all, people's immigration status may mean that they have no access to benefits um, or to housing services and so on. Their European rights, and as I've said, those have changed significantly in the last four months, may mean that they don't have that access or that it's uh, precarious, as I've said. Often people actually are uh, people with rights, but they have moved into that situation relatively recently, and it's taking a long time to produce the necessary documentation and so on that would establish them. Typical of those, for example, people who get refugee status very often wait months to get the paperwork that they need and the benefits that they're entitled to. Notice that of the uh, small numbers, 14% of, destitu of destitute migrants who, um, who are not Europeans, actually 60% of them have a right to live in the UK and so may well actually have access to benefits and so on, but simply haven't been able to exercise that. People may also, I mean, part of that is that people may have no proof of their status or no documents, and very often things that have triggered homelessness also mean you lose your documents, fires, domestic violence, that sort of thing. Um, you may have no right to live in the UK at all. Um, you may, uh, in other words, be a, a real sort of, you know, core group of the undocumented migrant. You may have been trafficked, and that may have knocked on into know, having your rights or not having them in the UK. It's also quite possible that you have all of those rights, you have the necessary paperwork, but you are still discriminated against. And I think that's one of the sort of elephants in the room about a lot of the discussion about migration is actually racism. And, you know, we've always known that racism exists, and it exists, you know, in the voluntary sector, in people advising people, as well as uh, in the statutory sector as well, and the <coughs> private sector. And people are quite consistently, in my experience, refused access to benefits and housing and so on that they're perfectly entitled to and it looks to me and to them very often that that's on the basis of who they are as opposed to their actual rights. So sorting out documentation as the first stage into things. First of all, immigration advice has been utterly decimated in the UK. It's largely moved out of scope apart from people who are you know, seeking asylum or, or being trafficked or uh, or looking to change their status on the basis of domestic violence. So you can no longer get free immigration advice of a decent quality in many parts of the UK. It's also quite difficult to get advice about your European rights. It wasn't a problem until relatively recently. And so very, a lot of practitioners are not very experienced in that area. Street Legal is a project that people should look at, um, run in London jointly with St Mungo's and with uh, Praxis and Refugee Action that addresses this issue of lack of immigration advice causing destitution. There is some interest in looking at how you might be able to do that nationally. I know Refugee Action are running a homelessness project nationally at the moment, for example. Also quite important in legal terms is that for somebody who is vulnerable and homeless, a local authority simply needs reason to believe 
that they are homeless, vulnerable and eligible in order to trigger a duty to accommodate. In other words, if somebody says, and there is no reason to disbelieve them, I am a person who has a right to live in the UK, I am homeless and I am ill enough or disabled enough or vulnerable enough or whatever for you to have a duty, then at that point local authorities should actually be accommodating and then assisting the person to sort out the documentation they need to prove it. In my experience that very rarely takes place, but it's a legal right that needs enforcement. <coughs> the transitions I've mentioned already, the reason to believe for homeless people should help with that. For benefits, the way into dealing with people in that transition is that very often the requirement to get benefits is not that you have a national insurance number, but that you have applied for one, and it's possible to speed that process up. There's an interesting, small, but expanding group of people who are ex-service people who are migrants, i.e. non-UK citizens, who are turning up in increasing numbers on the streets across the UK. Um, there's two drivers for that, I think. One is that um, there's wide-scale redundancies in the armed forces. And um, in the past, if you were leaving the armed forces, there was a fairly measured process in which the armed forces cooperated with keeping you in accommodation and so on until you got yourself sorted out. That's going by the by because of the numbers involved. And the second thing is that people who have served in the armed forces previously had a, an expectation they would become citizens or get settlement and the rules on that have tightened up significantly, so we're now seeing cases that get reported in the press of people with distinguished records of service in the British Army who were refused settlement and citizenship on the basis of what would generally be fairly minor criminal convictions, but because the martial, in, under martial law they're, they're more serious, they refuse that possibility. And of course the other issue is about discrimination. Note that discrimination is still in scope for legal aid. Very, very few cases ever get taken on it. Um, but, of course, it won't be in scope if the legal aid uh, apply the residence test that's currently being contested um, by way of proceedings and so on, um, because people who can't prove that they have a right to live in the UK won't be able to take proceedings saying they've been discriminated against. And there's um, a research project funded by the Strategic Legal Fund just kicking off at the moment about discrimination against migrants in the private rented sector being run by Hanson Palomares, solicitors and London citizens. For anybody who's interested, I can give you more details. <coughs> People who have no right to live in the UK at all are basically going to have to acquire one before they're going to be able to access other sources of housing and benefits and so on. That's a complicated process. You need experts to tell you how to do it. You will have a hard time finding them. Um, obviously, another option, if you can't regularise, is to look at voluntary return. Um, and as part of either of those processes, there's the option of looking to social care authorities, social services authorities, if there is somebody in the family who's a child or who is vulnerable or is a young person who has been in the care of local authorities. That's likely to be refused by local authorities if there's no possible route to regularisation, but actually it's routinely refused by local authorities even where the person is on the path to regularisation. Because, I mean, I think in fairness, mainly because social workers, like everybody else, are under huge pressure and they really don't understand the law and they're certainly not taught it very much. Um, generally, otherwise, people are going to be looking to community, charity and family support in order to sustain themselves in the UK, and that is a scarce resource and one that's under huge pressures. Um, obviously, there's a, a, a proportion of people who are trafficked. I think particularly important is to notice the importance of, labor, of trafficking for labour in this, which is very often lost in other discussions about trafficking. 
There are definitions of trafficking. I think I'll skip over this because it's a very specialist area, but you'll find lots about it on the website. Um, but I think what's interesting about all of this is the way it raises questions about how it is that people do advice, support and advocacy for anybody who is homeless or, or, or in housing need and so on. Because there's a very interesting issue about what can you do if you're an advice service and you encounter people for whom there is no safety net. And I think it's actually one of the things about this is that migrants yet again are the canaries in the mine here. Because if you don't learn with migrants, you're going to need to learn pretty quickly because increasingly there are lots of people being left without a safety net. And look at the numbers of benefit sanctions, for example, that have been applied in the thousands across the UK recently. The next question for anybody is, you know, what new resources are we going to need and do they exist? Because if you're going to work with a group of people you haven't worked with before, you need to know about what the network is that you're part of. And a big concern, I think, that we've picked up from people working with destitute migrants is that they're worried that what they're doing may not be legal because they think they may be in some way assisting people to carry out illegal acts in terms of uh, migration and things like that. And, of course, from the other side is the worry of the, the person, the destitute migrant, which is... Uh, how do I know that what I tell you is going to be confidential? Um, you know, what are the rules about that? And if you're then liaising with other authorities, what protection is there of my data? And this is a huge grey area, actually. I mean, there's, there's legal uh, stuff about it, which, you, again, you can read on the website. It's actually quite, you know, quite a restricted range of ways in which local authorities, for example, can pass on information about people who've contacted them. They have a fundamental duty to protect sensitive personal data that's passed on to them in the course of their work. But it's routinely breached. And of course, migrants know that and communities know that. So even if you didn't know it, when you ask a friend who asks their aunt, they'll tell you. And very often what they'll tell you is not the legal position, but the practical position. Which raises the issue about why destitute migrants should trust anybody they go and see. Because obviously they're very worried about how far this will go, how people will see them, and indeed the expertise that they've got when they walk into a new office or whatever. <laughs> so as I said, it takes us back to quite basic stuff around advice, in my experience. Quite sort, of, um, you know, quite sort of fundamental things about what you're doing if you're an advice agency. Because you're no longer essentially someone who is organising, as I always used to say when I ran advice agencies, essentially we're organised queue jumpers. Um, you know, making sure that the vulnerable people who walk into us get their right place in the queue and don't lose it because they're more vulnerable than other people who've pushed past them. Um, if there's no queue then you've got a very different role in that. I think also it's very important to notice that working with destitute migrants can often be, as I said here, quite extreme, complex or intense work. It throws up lots of surprises. Destitute migrants are trying out all sorts of ways of managing their lives and we often haven't heard of them before they tell us about them. And that's quite a difficult number for someone who's a very experienced advisor. You know, you, you manage your working life, which is difficult and worrying and complex, by in effect anticipating an awful lot of what your clients are going to do. When you start working with destitute migrants you lose that ability and you have no idea what they're going to come back and tell you about in two days time or something like that. You have very little chance of dumping your caseload if you are dealing with destitute migrants and of course that's a constant fear. Somebody walks into an agency, you know you've only got capacity to deal with a certain number of people, what are you going to be able to do with the other people, pass them on to someone else, this lot have nowhere else to go very often. And very often it's difficult to follow up because people themselves don't come back or come back too late for you to do things and so on because their own lives are upending their good intentions to cooperate well with you. Um, because it's an underdeveloped area of practice, we don't get the chance to exchange either about ideas and so on 
and learn from that. And it's also quite difficult sometimes to build relationships with people who are in extreme situations and very focused on their own survival and therefore don't do the kind of nice things that other clients do, you know, saying, saying please and thank you and chatting and, and generally being pleasant to be with and so on. So it challenges advice ethics, which has always been an area of interest of mine, so I'm sort of glad to be continuing to work in it and so on. It challenges the way in which we do advice, because generally, you, somebody walks in, you think, OK, this person is homeless, my aim is to get them into some form of transitional or settled accommodation. Well, actually, that's going to be impossible with this person. It's not going to happen. You've got to set your aims in a different way, and you've got to set your measures in a different way, because the measures that you're currently using to demonstrate your success to your funders, very often, are no longer any use. And you've got to be careful because otherwise, you know, all the measures you've got will suddenly start going adrift because the people you're working with you can't help in the way you expected. It requires a significant commitment by the advisor and the agency. I think that, um, first of all, you need to challenge and check on the policies you've got to make sure you're not excluding people and that the service you're offering is, is fit for people to come into. You need very strong supervision because you're in a completely unknown area and advisors need supervision, they very often don't realise it, but actually need a supervisor who is prepared to support you in the process of learning about that. And you need a very clear acknowledgement of risk. And the first thing I've now put up there, which is the ethics of advice, are actually very often unstated, but they're there. I'm almost finished, don't I? Um, and, I mean... Working with people in, as, as destitute migrants very often challenges that. I've already said it challenges people's views about migration very often. Um, you know, people may have all sorts of views they've acquired about migration without actually meeting many migrants. <coughs> Once they start meeting them and they may change those views, there may be some ethical foundations to that that need exploring and so on. But it challenges all sorts of other things. I mean, as an advisor, what do you think about somebody who steals for food? Does it depend on who they steal from? You know, it doesn't matter if they steal from Tesco's or from their brother-in-law. You know, what, what's your ethical view about that? And how do you deal with that when, you're, when there's a challenge of that sort? And how do you set up a different set of boundaries so that you've got somebody's trust enough for them to tell you how they're managing their lives um, and to know that it won't go any further in, in certain situations, but also that you maintain your own boundaries in terms of what you think is right and wrong? which you probably have to explore in the first place because most of us don't think about that very much. Um, so I'm going to leave it there to John to talk about an organisation that works in that complicated area. Well, having got you all thoroughly depressed, we, we <laughs> thought we'd uh, finish on a note hope. of hope. Um, the Hope Project is based in Birmingham. It's, the, the, I think, the longest-standing um, asylum uh, or migrant <coughs> project. Um, that uh, is still going at any rate. It was set up 10 years ago um, and uh, it was uh, inspired and got together by a, a group of uh, local people very involved in housing and they persuaded um, local housing associations, one or two of them quite big associations actually, <clears throat> to provide units completely free of charge. So they currently I think have eight units provided by housing associations. Housing associations in general <coughs> find it difficult to help destitute people because they've got no source of income, they've got no access to housing benefit in, in the majority of cases, as Sue has explained. But they might be able to provide a unit of accommodation and just give it to another organisation on a long lease. And this is what this is the way that Hope operate. 
Um, they work mainly, but I don't think exclusively, with asylum cases. Um, in the last financial year in which they've reported, they've, they, they've helped 89 people. So people do tend to stay quite a bit of time. Obviously, they're dealing with people who've got no money at all. So HOPE is not just an accommodation project. There's a, there's a, a range of projects within the HOPE, uh, under the HOPE banner. Um, and uh, one of the things they do is to get uh, charitable donations, bring it into HOPE, and then they, um, they, they've created a destitution fund. So the people who are both uh, without a roof and without money get help, obviously very basic help, from the destitution fund. And they also run their own, uh, get their own running costs from local charities. I think they have um, two full-time workers, but I think possibly they have more than that. So um, you can look at their website and put the URL on the slide, but it's easy to find. We wanted to just remind you where you can get more information. Everything that's, or a lot of what Sue has said is on the new destitution pages on our Housing Rights uh, website. Um, there, there are tabs at the top of the home page for different categories of migrants. And there's a new tab uh, marked people who are destitute. And if you look at, you'll find the basic advice for migrants themselves, and then much more detailed advice, particularly on the destitution issue for advisors going over in more detail some of the ground that uh, Sue covered this morning. And then um, the Housing and Migration Network, which Sue and I were both members and also Heather, um, and is anybody else involved, published a report, a guide on housing and migration, which is on the JRF website, it's also on the Chartered Institute of Housing website. And it's got a section on destitution. Um, and also on the JRF site, there's a destitution pack designed to help uh, housing associations and other people who might want to set up destitution projects. So there are some resources available, albeit that there aren't very many resources for destitute migrants themselves. <coughs>